Father, we just want to be aware of your presence in this place. We thank you that that's a promise in your word. Jesus dwells among the lampstands of the churches and that you are present here as we gather around you. And as we gather around you, we pray that the fragrance of Jesus Christ would emanate here as you are praised and as you are honored and as you are glorified. And we pray that out of that uh, fragrance, as was just spoken, we would want more of you when we leave today. We want to crowd around you today. We want to receive from you. We want to give you what is due your holy name. We want to be changed into your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What you just heard from uh, our dear sister Dodie on the screen there was an experience of prayer that she was... uh, describing in her uh, prayer life and in her experience what Jesus refers to simply as the secret place. Jesus, as uh, Ryan shared earlier, has been going through uh, one of the largest sections of his teaching and of his preaching we call a Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through it and we've gotten to this part in which he speaks about things like the interior life and of the heart, and of uh, physical practice, and of those things. And we just saw this last week where he starts with verse 1, speaking about the practices of righteousness. We sometimes use interchangeably the spiritual disciplines, uh, whatever you want to call it. That's what Jesus is speaking about. And he's speaking about kind of the wrong way to practice righteousness versus the kingdom way to practice righteousness. And he throws out uh, about three examples. Last week, we saw that he uh, threw out the example of almsgiving or giving to the needy, giving to the poor, and what that looks like when you belong to the kingdom. And now he's speaking about prayer, and he's referring specifically to what we saw uh, exemplified and defined as the secret place. And he kind of presents that right now as an alternative, a kingdom alternative to some of the dry practices of the religious establishment of his day. And he's saying essentially what we've been uh, uh, commenting about, this is the good life, this is the better life. This is a deeper, richer experience than what the world would have offer you in the way of spirituality. Come and follow the way of Christ. And he speaks right now, uh, again, this is coming from his, that first verse, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And now, in verses five through eight, he jumps into the deep end of what that looks like as it pertains to prayer. Now, he's going to have a lot to say about prayer, but before he even gets to the words that often result in our prayer life, he stops, he slows down, it appears, to talk about our posture. He speaks and starts with the posture of prayer. He's not specifically speaking about physical posture, but the posture of a person's heart. The posture of that inner life, what it looks like in your mind and in your heart when you approach the Father in prayer. And he starts, like he, you know, it's kind of characteristic of Jesus to do so by way of example, by showing us negative ways to pray, by showing us how not to pray. And he throws out a couple things, right? He says, don't pray with showy prayers and don't babble in your prayers. You don't need to. When he speaks about showy prayers, he says in verse, at the beginning of verse 5, in other words, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Showy prayers. 
prayers to be seen. Now, this isn't to be confused with any type of public praying. He's not saying don't pray in public. Don't pray so people can't hear you. Don't pray in prayer meetings. Don't pray liturgically. Don't pray in any of those manners. Uh, Only pray in private. That's not what he's saying. Remember, he's getting at the posture of the heart. He's speaking to the motives of the heart. We know this because in a few verses, he's going to give us a model prayer to pray in a corporate setting. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we know he can't be meaning that. He's rather getting deep at the motive of the heart. And he says so in that same verse. Some people pray in public so that they may be seen by others. Some people pray not because they want to talk or commune with God, but because they want recognition from other people. They want to appear pious. They want to appear religious. They want to appear very Christian. Their motivation is not communion with God. Their motivation is the recognition of other people. Jesus is saying in this example that that's, you've missed the point. You are far outside the rhythms of God's kingdom. There's, there's more for you than that. Some people are praying, and they pray simply to be seen by others. They plan their whole religious lifestyle around being seen. About seven years ago, before Reality Santa Barbara existed, uh, we all met at the Carpinteria campus in Carpinteria. And if you've ever been there, it's this building, there's a sanctuary, and there's three doors on the side of the sanctuary. You can go out the middle, you can go out the west side, you can go out the east side, and there, uh, on the opposite end of the doors, is this long foyer, and directly in front of the middle door are these stairs that go up to the children's ministry. About seven years ago, I was leading worship at that particular campus, And as I walked out the doors to grab a cup of coffee after the first set of worship, I saw this girl. Her name was Brianna. She was a children's minister. And she was walking down the stairs with a trail of kids behind her. I think there were four, uh, three or four-year-olds. And she was walking down to bring them outside for their recess activities and all of that stuff. And I saw her walking down for the first time, and I was like, whoa. (laughs) Who's that? Now, generally, at the CARP campus, when I was done leading worship, I would go out the uh, west side doors because it connected with the, the kitchen. And I would go directly to the kitchen, grab some coffee, maybe some food, maybe take a nap, whatever. And it was, a, it was the easiest exit. But once I noticed that she was coming down the stairs, I took the circuitous route around the Uh, eastern side so that I could walk down the foyer and hopefully catch her. Now, Sundays came along with ruthless regularity over and over and over. I would pass by her and I would see her until after a a number of times, I just kind of knew when she was walking down the stairs. I had it down to a time and a science and the seconds and I knew when she was coming down. So I would time myself because I was planning on being seen. And there would come a point where I would walk, and I had it down, down to the second where I'd walk by the stairs as she was walking down, and I would even slow down to make sure that we met right there in the foyer, and I would, I would just look over like this, like, oh, I, I had no idea you were there. I said, how are the kids? Praise God, and all this religious jargon. And every single time that I did this, she would ignore me or she would roll her eyes. She might have even chuckled to herself laughing at the silly man. But 
Who's laughing now? <laughs> Love you. <laughs> I was planning on being seen. I spent all of my effort and time just to be seen. Now, what Jesus is speaking to in this precise uh, moment is the same problem. Jews weren't communing with God. The Hebrews weren't communing with God. They were just planning on being seen. There was an age-old tradition uh, spanning much farther than the day of Jesus that Hebrews were very uh, uh, aware of, and it was customary, for example, in their prayers to pray several times a day. Psalm 55, verse 17, evening and morning, and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Psalm 119, verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. And so after a number of centuries there developed this tradition, very rich and a good one that I love, in which at certain hours of the day, we call it the liturgy of the hours or the divine hours, it's still practiced today, wonderful tradition, where you would stop what you're doing at a certain time during the day, and you would sanctify the hours in prayer. It didn't matter if you were eating, didn't matter if you were at work, didn't matter if you were napping, you would wake up, stop everything you were doing to pray to the Lord. Very wonderful practice uh, that still happens However, and so Jesus isn't saying liturgical prayer, time prayer, written prayer, any of that is bad. Again, it's the posture of the heart. There were people in that time who, knowing at what point the bell would go off, right? Three o'clock, noon, whatever it was, would make sure that at the ringing of that bell, they just so happened to be at the right place at the right time. They would be walking in the most busy part of the city at an intersection, crowded intersection, or they would just so happen to be at that time right in front of the temple so that when they dropped everything to pray, everyone could see how religious they were and they would turn around and be like, oh, I had no idea you were there. I was just praying to my God. Hallelujah. And they would look very pious and religious. And Jesus is saying to them, that's so silly. Why are you praying? Who are you praying to and what are you praying for? And notice that he's reaching into the motives of a person's heart. But he, uh, he addresses it by giving them a physical practice. In other words, there, there's a problem with the heart. We have these bad motives. We have these sinful desires that take, uh, excuse me. <sighs> that eventually turn... <laughs> turn into habits, actions, behaviors, after you do them enough time, uh, after you do those actions and behaviors enough times, they become habits that are deeply ingrained. And Jesus diagnoses the problem as being one of the heart. You just want people to like you. You just want people to accept you. You're using prayer meant for God as a means of stroking your identity. But in order to apply uh, his word to the heart, he actually addresses the body and he gives them a new posture, at least his disciples. And he says, but when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. I find it fascinating that Jesus speaking to the heart of people, invisible inward uh, part of the human person gives them a physical practice those habits that we have that are tainted with sin, even when our heart, as Paul says, I want to do the right thing, 
but I end up doing the wrong thing. Our heart desires the things of God, but we have these deeply ingrained habits that are still locked into who we are. Jesus gives us different postures, different practices. He says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, in that day, in midday, uh, in the ancient, uh, in ancient Palestine, literally that word for room would have referred to a small closet or a pantry. I don't think he was actually telling people to stuff themselves into a small pantry to pray. What I do think he was saying is, this is, you know, there should be times, public prayer is great, we should do that, but we should also have times of private prayer. And he's speaking here specifically of solitude. which we've brought up a couple times in the last couple weeks, there must be times where we draw away from other people just to be in the presence of our God. Have you noticed that our habits are closely integrated with our social circles? Oh, we have sinful habits. We have good habits too. But they are deeply ingrained with our relationships at times. Dallas Willard from uh, his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, writes, Solitude for that reason, is the most radical of the disciplines for the life of the spirit because it excludes interactions with others upon which fallen human personality completely depends. It breaks that side of you. There's good aspects of relationships. There's also parts of it that can function as a crutch. For example, if I have a low self-esteem, I might act differently around you to make me feel better about myself. If I'm a prideful person, and that's a big if, (laughs) when I'm around people, I might assert myself with a false sense of authority or entitlement. I use other people then to build up my pride. If I am lonely, if I have the sense of aloneness, being around people might deaden the pain of that. It might mask the pain of... Uh, that loneliness. And so you see social activity, that social aspect can sometimes reinforce habits in our flesh, maybe even ones that we don't even know are there that are very contrary to the kingdom. Solitude will strip you of that. Time spent by yourself can strip you of those crutches, leaving you with just your weakness in the presence of God for him to address. It leaves you alone with your sin in the presence of a loving God. We see this, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, often practiced, frequently and deeply in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who knew no sin, still thought it appropriate to spend a lot of time, frequently, prolonged periods of time, by himself in the presence of God. We see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. Right before the, uh, the day he was tempted by the devil and as he was going into the beginning of his earthly ministry, we're told that immediately the spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed for 40 days. Luke chapter 6 verse 12, right before picking the 12 apostles, we're told that he went to a mountain to pray and all night continued in prayer to God. In Mark chapter 1, right after healing and delivering people and right before preaching to others, we're told that he rose very early in the morning while it was still dark and he departed and went out to a desolate place to pray. 
Mark chapter 6, right after a lot of ministry exertion, a lot of activity, and right before feeding 5,000 people, he says to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. And he himself takes a leave of them and goes on to a mountain to pray. Matthew chapter 14, right after he then feeds the 5,000 and before he walks on water, he dismisses the crowds, he goes up to a mountain to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, prayed a long time, alone. Luke chapter 4, verse 42, after casting out demons, he departs and goes to a desolate place. Luke chapter 5, after healing a leper, after many sick people were coming to him with their needs, he saw fit at a certain point to withdraw to desolate places to pray. And who can forget the most stressful part of Jesus' earthly life in his death, trial, and resurrection. Right before that, Jesus went with his disciples to Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. Unmistakable is this intentional and strategic habit in the life of our Lord that he saw fit and very important to his life and his ministry and his obedience to the Father that he had to go away and be with the Father. There were times where he did that with people. There were certainly times where he pulled away and was by himself with the Father. He spent much time in solitude. And let's be very careful to specify this isn't just being you know, by yourself. This isn't just being introverted, right? Being away from the crowds. This is a specific time to be away from the crowds in order to be with your God. Jesus did this so frequently. We see it carried on in the life of his disciples. And is it any wonder that the most pressing times in his life, look at how all of these happened either after a very, uh, a very key part of his life, a crucial part, or a moment of suffering and trial, or before. Is there any wonder that in the most pressing times in Jesus' life, he was prepared to follow his Father's will? Why wouldn't he? He had been feeding off the Father's will beforehand. He was satiated by the Father. I think we sometimes encounter this danger as as even just Western believers with our understanding of perhaps or misunderstanding of what a disciple is. We often, and I've done this so frequently in the past, think of a disciple simply as someone who just learns and gathers some information, right? Chris, are you a disciple? Well, yes, I know this doctrine, and I know, you know, I've memorized this passage, and I know this and this and this. It's an intellectual type of ascent, disciple. That is, could not be farther from what we see in the first century. Of course, it includes that, that we know true things about Jesus. That's why he gave us his word. It has to include that, but it's also very all-encompassing. It's obsessive. It's deep. It's everything. A Hebrew word for disciple, uh, talid or ta, uh, taladim, that word for disciple spoke specifically about a desire in a pupil's life. Think of a first century Hebrew that lived you know, most of their childhood life wanting to attain something. What was that? To be the disciple of a rabbi they respected. They spent most of their uh, childhood life and teenage life getting to a point where they can come up to a rabbi, not just any rabbi, but a rabbi that they learned to respect and esteem and uh, obsess over. 
And the greatest thing that could happen for that young person, that disciple, was to go up to a, uh, go up to a rabbi after a decade, decades of training, memorizing the Tanakh, memorizing the scriptures, uh, living a certain way, being the top of their class in their religious school, was to get to a point where they, would be co- uh, where they could ask a rabbi of their choosing. In other words, you are the rabbi who I respect above all things, the way that you live, the things that you say, your worldview of things, your lens by which you view everything, and they would say, can I become your disciple? Can I become your taladim? And what they were saying was, that word, locked up in that word, was a desire and a passion in that disciple's heart. I want to be just like my rabbi. Not just, I want to know some things, like some Wikipedia infomercials about my rabbi. I want to know how he thinks. I want to know what he does. I want to know what he's passionate about. I want to know how he eats. I want to know uh, how he sleeps. I want to know uh, what he's concerned about. I want to know what he's afraid of. I want to know how he handles those fears. I want to know how he deals with his finances. I want to know how he deals with people. I want to know everything about him, and I want to be just like him. That was the disciple in the first century. Now that thought doesn't disappear with Christianity. It grows so much more deeper than you could imagine because now with that, that, that understanding that through Jesus' death and resurrection by the power of the Spirit, we don't get to just be like him. He actually indwells in us and forms us from the inside out to be just like him. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's not just, a, that's not just a, 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 an act of hyperbole. When Paul says in Galatians chapter four, I am in anguish for you that Christ be formed in you. He's not using exaggeration. He's, he's speaking literally that this rabbi, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith, actually dwells in you and it's transforming you from the inside out. That's the dream. That's the good life. And so we would have to ask as his disciples, not just what does he say, but what does he do? And we see he spends a lot of time by himself in the presence of the Father. I am compelled to look at that as a disciple and say, well, you must know something about life that I don't. And I want to do that too. Solitude serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. These things that we've been talking about, wanting to be seen, recognition, insecurity, love of, uh, uh, wanting to be uh, adored by people, all of those things that crush us and cripple us, those things are jarred when you are in solitude with the Father. That's the first thing Jesus says. Showy prayers, you can deal with that by getting in secret, solitude. Then, turns his messianic canon on babbling prayers. Babbling prayers. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The word that he's using here means babbling or prattling on, just talking nonsense over and over, to, uh, praying long, using, uh, uh, you know, using many words in order. And he, he just explains it himself. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Speaking in a way that you think that the actual words that you're saying or the way that you say it or the length of what you say is gonna get God's attention. This isn't to be confused with persistent prayer. We see elsewhere in scripture where we are 
to have this posture of persistence in prayer. We're going to never give up. We're to pray as though we have the answer. We are to uh, knock on the door and keep knocking. We are to persist. That's not what this is talking about. This is speaking about manipulating God. This uh, idea, you know, and it comes from the ancient context where pagans and polytheistic worshipers would have a variety of different gods and they might pray something, I'll just throw something out like, God, heal my headache. And with their understanding that there are hundreds of gods, they would just kind of name each one that they could think of. You know, Zeus and Allah and the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and this one and this one in hopes that one of them would hear their prayers and one of them would answer them. Think about that scene, I think it's in the book of Kings where Elijah is on Mount Carmel and they have that face-off between his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, the gods of Baal. And they are offering a sacrifice to the gods of Baal, and they're screaming and crying out all day long, and they're cutting themselves. And they're, uh, you know, they're, they're wearing themselves out. And they're doing everything that they can to kind of twist the arm of their God, and he does not answer, because he does not exist. Elijah says a couple words, tosses some water on the altar, lights a match, fire falls from heaven. That's our God. (laughs) And we know this in our minds, and yet sometimes I find myself praying long prayers in the secret place. There's nothing wrong, per se, with long prayers, but it is if I'm praying long prayers because I don't think God hears me. Have you ever done that? You're like, God, heal my headache because... You love me and I'm your child and just heal my headache. God, would you just heal my headache? You said in your word that, you know, by your stripes I'm healed. Could you just heal my headache? I don't know if you heard me, God. Can you heal my headache? Or there's the complex prayers where you throw out all the theological jargon that you've ever heard in that book that you read. God, by your justification, I am being sanctified and I will be glorified. And when I am glorified, I will have no headache. And God, I am on a trajectory in the story of your grand redemption to that place where there will be no headaches and there will be no tears and there will be no headaches. I don't know if you heard that part, just reminding you. And I just want to say, God, that by your splendor, just by my understanding of the hermeneutical exercise, insights that I got from the study on Sunday, Lord, trying to impress him with our prayers. Or how about the sermon prayer? I do this all the time. Where I pray, but I'm not really praying or talking to God, I'm, I'm telling him what he's supposed to do. Sermon. God, don't you remember that you sent your son to die for my sins and my headache. (laughs) And Lord, you said in your word that all things work together for the good of those who love him. You remember that? Well, then why don't you? And I'm preaching a sermon, and I'm giving three points of uh, understanding and an application, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to persuade God, hey, if you understand who you are, then this is what you'll do, and here's the application, and just do it this way, and everything will be great. Or how about the deep voice? I I'm sometimes, I, I sometimes catch myself, even here, when I pray, changing my voice. <laughs> Lord... Actually, I've been doing it this whole time in all of these examples. Lord, Lord, I come to you in the name of your dear heavenly son. 
ask that in the name of Jesus. Now, none of these things, I just want to, you might, you, you might be doing some of these, not trying to make you feel guilty. Sometimes we pray with a deep voice because we have deep feeling and unction. Sometimes it's okay to claim it and to recite the scriptures. Jesus actually, God actually tells us to use his word when we're praying. If we pray according to his will, we have the answer to which the, uh, for the, the things to which we ask. So we're to pray his will. It's okay to recite his scriptures back to him. It's okay to pray long. It's even okay to pray complex. Nothing wrong with those things, but when I'm doing them because I don't trust God and I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to wrangle him into submission, Jesus says, you missed the point. And he says, do not be like them, for your father, listen to this, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that wonderful? You don't need to twist his arm. He knows what you need. He doesn't even need you to pray those words to him. He already knows what your needs are, and yet he asks you to pray. Can you imagine why he would do that? Could it simply be that he loves you? The same way that when my daughter comes to me and asks me for juice, you know, I already know that about 6.30 in the morning, she's going to wake up, and the first thing out of her lips is going to be, juice, juice, juice. But I love it when she asks me. I just love when my daughter asks me for things. God, at least in the way that God the Son is showing him in this verse, is a God of love and care and goodness towards his people. He loves humanity, and he's present to bless his people. I love that verse that Paul tells us in Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us everything? In other words, Paul's saying, if God gave you his son, why would he not answer any of your other prayers? Now, of course, his answer to our prayers might not look like the way we envision them to be answered, but he's always good in his answer. He's always good, and he wants to hear you. He wants to be with you. This is an issue of trust. First one was solitude. This one is trust. A trust and desire to know God and to be known by him and to do so in that secret place of solitude. In other words, there's a time and a place where we must draw away from the crowds, draw away from the noise, and just come to our Father in a, posi- uh, in a posture of trust. If I were to summarize everything that Jesus said uh, so far, he's comparing, he's saying the pagans, in other words, people who don't know the, the Father relationally, people who are not born again, who do not know God in this way, they pray like people who are generally out of control. There's this loss of control, and what do people do when they lose control? They just grab for everything. We see that in people's prayer life, looking for people's approval, praying a certain way, manipulating God to get their way. They're out of control. They're flailing about. But those who know God intimately by faith in Christ, they spend time in solitude because they can't. They spend time in solitude resting in God's presence because they know that he cares for them. They can do it without pretense. They can do it without manipulation. They can do it without religious posturing. They can do it without hiding their sins, their flaws, their mistakes. They can do it because they know that they don't have to be afraid of God. And they can 
sometimes pray even without words. They can simply be in the presence of God just because that has been given to them through Jesus Christ. That posture of prayer that Jesus was explaining to his disciples is often simply referred to as contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is a way of praying without using words. In fact, it is, it is wordless. It is a wordless posture of prayer that involves the practice of simply being in the presence of God without an agenda. It's wonderful. It's that secret place. What we see Jesus explaining to his disciples, what we see in his own life, what we saw testify to in Dodie's life, um, it is that desire to simply be in the presence of God without agenda, without a list of things, even though that's okay too at other times, there is this time where we just must practice being in his presence. Now, the second I said contemplative prayer, some of you just started to twitch, just like, whoa. And I get it. I, uh, the other day, I, I tweeted this question. I'm gonna talk about contemplative prayer tomorrow. Any questions? And I got a litany of questions. Uh, I love doing this right before Sunday, just, just uh, tweeting questions and thoughts and interacting with people. Lazo Chris, if you're on Twitter, I know, shameless plug. And I asked a few people, and these are some of the responses. In other words, the question was, I'm gonna address contemplative prayer tomorrow. Uh, anything you want me to bring up, or any questions that you have, or anything you think I should interact with, here were the, the top ones. The first one was, is contemplative prayer biblical? I think if we, aside from the passages that I uh, read, the life that we see in Jesus' life, which is, that is the definition of what it is, then I would say yes, there's plenty others. If we're defining it simply as wanting to be in the presence of God, no agenda, no words, just resting in his presence, just seeking his face, well, yeah, there's a treasure trove for you to feast on. Second Chronicles chapter 16, 11, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Psalm 23, 2, he leads me beside still waters. That sense of just being quiet in the, in, in the Lord, that sense of uh, resting, no agenda, no anything, just being with, and he leads you to a place of peace and quiet. I love that. Psalm 27, verse eight, you have said, seek my face, and so, Lord, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. John 15, verse four, Jesus tells us, abide in me. I love that phrase. There's, there's another case in point. Just abide, just remain, just be. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 17, 24, Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of the disciples, whom you have given me may be with me where I am. There's this sense that is said so beautifully and wonderfully by the psalmist, one thing I have asked of, Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There must be times in the life of the Christian. Well, that's the only thing we're doing. We're just gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Yes, we have headaches. Yes, we have financial woes. 
Yes, our family has drama. Yes, we have needs and cares. Yes, there's social stuff all over the world that we pray for. Yes, we want to pray for his kingdom to come. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. But there are other times. In fact, I would say, and it seems like Jesus is implying that all of those other times are fueled by this place where you are simply in the presence of the living God. One person asked, why are some Christians so suspicious of contemplative prayer? And this is true. I once was too. And many people are. Perhaps many in this room. Often in my experience with other believers is because this word association, contemplative, is so close to other forms of spirituality that, we, uh, that are secular. For example, Eastern mysticism and New Age practice among others. In fact, they use the same words. That's not anything new. Every type of religion has a form of prayer. Muslims pray. Um, Christian scientists pray, I think. Uh, uh, Hindus pray. Everyone has a form of prayer. Christians pray. And yet we also understand from what Jesus says that we are praying to the one true God. So it's not just that you are praying. It's not the practice itself that is special, but who you are speaking to. Those who pray and worship in spirit and in truth. Everyone else prays to the wall or to an idol or to a demonic presence. It is no different. If contemplative prayer simply means wordless postures of being in the presence of God and seeking his face. We see this practice all throughout centuries of Christian history, including in the life of Jesus. This isn't something that was made up, uh, but this is something we should address, especially here in Santa Barbara where spirituality, new age, Eastern mysticism is a huge stronghold here in our city. We must understand that this is different. Eastern meditation seeks primarily, and you'll often hear this, to empty the thought, uh, empty the mind of thoughts. Empty the mind, you might hear often. This could not be farther from Christian practice. Christian practice does not seek to empty the mind of thoughts. It seeks to identify the thoughts that you have and release them into the hands of your God. Or it seeks to train your thoughts to align with the thoughts of God. You see that in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed in your mind. Be transformed in your mind by the renewing of your mind. We see that type of thing, training our thoughts by thinking about right things. Colossians chapter 3, when Paul says... Um, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life, there it is again, is hidden with Christ in God. He is in you, you are in him, so you are to think in those terms. You are to get your mind onto things that are right to think about. That is the difference between Christian meditation and any other form, where you're simply to just empty your mind of all things. No, we are to think about Christ. Some think of it as mysticism. It need not be. It's simply a restful experience of Christ in you. It's, a, it's an awareness. It is coming to that awareness that, wow, Jesus is in me and I am in him and that's real. How does that inform the way that I live? How does that change the way that I think? Maybe it doesn't. 
I need to spend more time in the presence of my God. Of course, some of the hindrances and pitfalls to any type of practice where you're being introspective or meditative or you're holding a posture like this is that if you are not grounded in the revelation of God's word, who knows where your mind is gonna go? That's why even after Jesus says, abide in me, he then says, as my words abide in you. Abide in me as my words abide in you. And then ask. He goes on to tell that we will receive. Like any form of meditation, it is vital that we are filling our minds with whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent. The whole of the Bible tells us, hey, the follower of Christ, before he does anything, must fill his mind with what God has said. Then when you go into places of solitude, those words begin to bubble up, just begin to bubble up. Some of you, you know, are looking at this very non-active approach to prayer and you're wondering why should I waste my time doing nothing? That's what it sounds like to you. That's what it sounded like to me. No words, no agenda, no list, no points. I'm just being, just sitting, just being in the presence of God. What a waste of time. I could fire off 10 emails in the time that I do that. So I'm gonna do it. <laughs> in the city of Santa Barbara, most people, and I'd, I'd venture to say most of the people in this room are very busy, we're very active. You kind of have to be just to stay here. Chances are you are... Uh, the head of some corporation or a business or you're an entrepreneur or you work three jobs or you're a college student, you have to be busy and active and productive just to pay your rent. That's kind of the nature of the city in which we live. It forces us, our city forces us to be on the move, to be productive, to be busy, to burn out eventually. And right now, perhaps you're listening to this saying, I don't got time for that. What's the point of something like that, especially if I don't see the fruit of it, if I don't feel it? Perhaps I can share my own story. In the month of November, I kind of told you that already, that there was a certain point in my life here at the church after a series of unfortunate events where I crashed and burned, fell into a deep state of, psychological depression, I was on the verge of burnout, I was plagued and crippled by my own anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, and I was falling apart. There was a certain point in my life where my, my beloved wife, this jarred me into repentance, but she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, I want my husband back. And that forced me, uh, some of you know this very well, sometimes we don't get our act together until we hit we hit a certain level at the bottom. And I hit the bottom. I at least hit this, a certain level at the bottom. It was uncomfortable for me as a father, as a human, as a dad, as a husband, as a disciple. I began to cry out to the Lord. And you, uh, some of you have heard my story. Part of that healing process began with me being honest and transparent and vulnerable to the Lord. Opening up my heart and letting him deal with some of that deep stuff that I had been hiding hiding behind, but it didn't stop there. Once you open your heart, what are you gonna do? You have to let in something else to replace that empty void. 
God is, in some of your lives right now, taking out a lot of bad furniture. He's rearranging furniture, saying, I'm gonna put this over there, and I'm gonna toss out that ugly papazon chair that you got there from your bachelor days. That is disgusting. I'm gonna put in my furniture. He moves in by the spirit of, of the living God, and he himself occupies your heart, your life. He doesn't just empty it of the things of this world. He, he replaces those things with himself. And so for me, that healing process wasn't just emotional health. It wasn't just opening up my heart to God and seeing, you know, why I was the way that I was and, you know, being real and vulnerable with some of those deep-seated issues. It was then giving myself to the Lord. It was by opening myself in times of prayer where I wasn't just interceding. I wasn't just praying for others. I wasn't just working hard. That was part of my burnout was that I had no life on the inside, but I just kept trying to pour out, just doing things for people, doing things for myself, being active, being productive, being a Santa Barbaran. And because there was nothing inside to fuel that insatiable appetite, I burned out or it came pretty close. And I discovered firsthand that you will wither inside if your religious outflow is ever greater than your spiritual intake. Some of you are there right now. You're doing a lot, but you're not getting anything. Arthur Bors in his book, a New Testament professor and writer uh, in the book Living in Focus writes, he tells a story when he was a pastor, he said, we are all aware of a sense of hurry in our culture. You can probably relate to this. In the last church I pastored, congregants identified busyness as their key spiritual challenge and asked church elders for help. Elders agreed that this was a significant concern, but then took two years to get around to addressing the issue because they had so much to do. Some argue that we North Americans now, in fact, work longer hours and more days than we did a few decades ago. All of us agree that life feels increasingly full, hectic, and busy. Surely it is no coincidence that as we become increasingly overwhelmed by demands and circumstances, our culture evinces deepening interest in spirituality. Ever heard that, uh, that famous battle cry of our culture and even of our church that was so rampant the past few years? Uh, I want... Jesus, not religion, or I want spirituality, but not religion. Regardless of whether the terminology is correct or not, you hear that deep desire in people's hearts. When they're thinking of religion, even if they're thinking wrongly, the idea is the, the action and the behavior and the doing and the productivity and the, uh, the requirements and the lists and the laws and the rules and all of the stuff that I'm supposed to do. And they're saying, I have been doing that and I'm tired. I want spirituality. Or in other words, if I could rephrase that, I have my inner life is emaciated. Perhaps some of them come to a church looking for the same thing and just get plugged in and just start doing stuff. God, help us. God, help us come back. Come back to that place and the secret place. You will wither inside when your outflow is greater than your intake. Perhaps some of you right now are busy, productive, active. Maybe you're spiritually active too. You're in prayer meetings, you're doing stuff, you're involved, you're serving, 
you work for that nonprofit, you're ministering to people in your workplace, you're interceding, these are all means of pouring out. But if you are not receiving from the presence of God, you will slowly wither away inside. Perhaps you already are. Wondering, is there more to the Christian life than, than this? I'm so tired. There is. You need to be filled with the life-giving, abundant presence of God. And you need to be doing it all the time. This can only happen when you spend time with your Father who wants to be with you in the secret place. When you commune with Him. And contemplative prayer is one of many ways, powerful ways, to do this. When I begin to shut my mouth and stop pretending that I was praying for other people because I was just putting on a show, hoping that God would be impressed when I shut up, shut my mind up, got on my face, wept, said, Lord, here I am. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do, but I, I believe that you're here. I believe that you're present for the blood of the cross. I began to put myself into that practice. Over time, I began to feel the sense of healing. And it wasn't that, you know, I would do this and I would get this emotional rise or this feeling. It wasn't that I heard the voice of God all the time or even at all. It wasn't that I could walk away from that moment and say, oh yeah, I had this experience and this happened. Sometimes I would walk away asking the same questions. Because I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. I just sat in the presence of God thinking about him. Nothing happened. There would be times where I'd walk away and I'd say, is, is this even doing anything? But the more I practiced this, the more I postured myself in this, I began to notice something about my spiritual life. My center began to hold. When things that would often make me angry came up, my center began to hold. When things began to disappoint me, when people did things that uh, were acts of betrayal or disappointments or they hurt me or they said things that ordinarily would cripple me because I lived for their recognition, I began to hold in my innermost being. When things around me began to get chaotic, I was able to go into that place much like Jesus not quite like Jesus, but when Jesus did it, in that moment of spending time in the presence of God, walking into any circumstances, and his center held. We see this not only in Jesus and the disciples and the apostles, but in people all throughout Christian history. Some famous, others not. Brother Lawrence, who is very famous, and known for his book, Practicing the Presence, made his whole life about this. His entire desire was to be constantly, second by second, aware of the presence of God. And he started off in a place where he was like, this is impossible, but I'm going to just try one second out of every hour to just, just at least briefly think about God. Frank uh, Labak, um, uh, who came around centuries later, would write in these journals about the same thing. And he would say, this year I've started out to live all of my waking moments in conscious listening to the inner voice, asking without ceasing, Father, what do you desire, said? Father, what do you desire right this minute? You just get into the habit of it. His desire was, as he would write several days later, was to get to a place where he could respond to Jesus Christ as a violin responds to the bow of its master. Lavik, Lawrence, Jesus, 
the disciples, they went to the secret place. Some of you have come today weary, burdened, broken, and tired, wondering. I've gone to the church. I've gone to my friends. I've gone to my family. I've gone to methods, and I've gone to lectures, and I've gone to books, and I've gone to all sorts of things. Where do I go to now? You can go to the secret place. You can go to the place where only Jesus Christ can be found. To whom was said by his disciples, where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. If this is a <clears throat> foreign to you, I just want to just give you a, just a way to practice it. You don't have to do this, but if it helps, just try this. At some point this week, you have you got a little piece of paper on your way in. It's just a scripture, short definition, and on the back, it's just a way to practice. Because I'm all about getting away from the esoteric and just getting just hands in the dirt. You know what I'm saying? I just want to do it. Sometimes I just want to do it. Here's a way you can do it. Just try this. Just, just try it a few times. At some point, you don't have to go off into the hills or into the ocean you, you know, to do stuff like this. You just find a place or time in your day, sometime this week, where you can pull away for 10 minutes and just get by yourself. Might be in a hallway. Might be in the redwoods. Might be at the beach. Might have to go into your car. For me, I got two kids, and they they want me to be around. So sometimes I literally go into the closet, like Jesus said. It's the only place I can go. <laughs> Pull away for ten minutes. Set your timer so you're not always looking at your clock, and don't say anything. Close your eyes, and instead of coming to God with a list of requests or an agenda or pretense or preconceived notions, just try to quiet your thoughts and just rest in your presence. Depend upon the gospel truth that he is with you, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't see it, even if you don't experience it. By virtue of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is with you in that moment. And dwell on that. You are with me, Lord. I want to be more aware of you right now. I want to be with you as well. And just rest. Simply open yourself to receive from God the Father. One helpful thing you can do is to focus on a simple word from Scripture. It can be something just simple like hope or love or peace or anything that, that really helps you. Or it can be a phrase. I often like using phrases from the Bible that remind you of who God is. And they usually have to do with where I'm at at that time. The Lord is my shepherd or my redeemer. Because inevitably, when you pull away from the noise and you pull away from people, your mind will start to wander, right? You'll start thinking about your trouble. You'll start thinking about your drama. You'll start thinking about uh, that email that you have to send or that deadline that you have to meet. And what you can do is, when your mind begins to wander, use the word of God to draw you back to the presence of God. I'm kind of an imaginative uh, visual person, so I often, like when I'm doing that, I imagine that I'm at the bottom of a riverbed. And you know, up on the top of the river, there's just this mighty flowing current, and it's just busy and chaotic, but I'm at the bottom where the water is still, and I just kind of, I just like to use my imagination, it's just a personal thing, and I just imagine that that's where I am. And often thoughts will come in, oh gosh, what am I gonna do about that? 
How am I going to pay that bill? What am I going to do about such and such? I have this deadline to meet. And whenever those thoughts come into my head, I just imagine that they're floating up to the top of the current and being taken away. And then I constantly use the word of God to bring myself back to the presence of God. The Lord is my shepherd. My favorite one is I am hidden. My life is hidden with Christ. My life is hidden with Christ. Oh, but that deadline, my life is hidden with Christ. And I begin to train myself to be aware of God's presence. You'll start to notice it's going to be really hard at first, but the more you do it, the more you will grow in awareness of God's presence, even when you don't stop to do it. That's the good life. One of the most revolutionary things we can learn as Christians is to be before we learn how to do. Many of us are good at doing things and getting stuff done, but God first calls us. Before he ever calls the disciples to use words, he first calls them to be children. And when we are in his presence, looking upon his face as sons and daughters who are trusting him, seeking his beauty and inquiring of him, then we can learn to pray as Jesus prayed, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need for today. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. And when those words fall off our lips, they fall from a deep place in our heart because we know our God. If that's where you're at right now, you just want to know your God. The procedure is easy. By faith, throw yourself at his mercy and say, I want to know you more. And let's begin the journey of disciples. Taladi, practicing his presence. Heavenly Father, as we worship you through music and through words of praise and adoration, we ask now that you would do that wonderful thing where you send your Holy Spirit to do what humanity cannot do for itself. Look at God. We couldn't look at you at a salvific, in a saving way because our eyes were blinded by the devil, but it was you by the Holy Spirit that caused a light to shine into a dark place, revealing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we're praying simply today, God, that you would reveal the light of your glory in this place that we as a psalmist might look upon you and gaze upon your beauty and inquire of you in this holy temple. You are so holy that the world might see your beauty and fall on their face. Let us be among the first of those examples. We pray this in Jesus' name.